A very well, warm welcome to all our listeners this incredible spring day, as it were. You are listening to Professor David Block, and our program today on cliffcentral.com is entitled Looking Up with Professor Block. Today I have a very unique guest. Our topic is extremely exciting. But before I give the topic and introduce my guest, allow me to give you the different feeds and the telephone number. You can reach me directly in studio on 0861-555-189. Allow me to repeat, that's 0861-555-189. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com, on Instagram, cliffcentral, Facebook, Cliff Central, and the WeChat ID is also Cliff Central. Now, of course, many of us in this country have had our minds focused on Orkney and what happened in Orkney. And so I decided to invite someone I've known for a great number of years, and his name is Professor Ray Durheim. Now, Professor Durheim holds the South African Research Chair in Earthquake Exploration and Mining Seismology. So, in other words, it's all about earthquakes. Uh, at um, He's jointly appointed at the School of Geoscience at Wits University and the Natural Resources and Environment Unit at the CSIR. Ray is also co-director of the Africa Array Research and capacity building program. The interesting point about this is that this program operates a network of geophysical observatories spread throughout uh, the continent of Africa, and uh, he is the South African principal investigator of a research program funded by the Japanese government called Observational Studies in South African Mines to Mitigate Earthquake risks. There's much more besides him serving on the International Union for Geological Sciences Committee, which is seeking to launch an international research program uh, known as Resourcing Future Generations. A very warm welcome to the studio, Ray, and it's a real delight to have you with us. I'd like to kick off the program before uh, discussing Orkney and earthquakes and so forth, uh, wearing my perhaps professorial hat as an astronomer. And of course, um, you know, as I travel the world, so many people come to me, and they're generally grouped into two different sectors, Ray. The one says that the universe you study is billions of years old. And then, of course, uh, a minority sector, you know, argues, and very vociferously so, that the universe is no no, no older than 6,000 years old. Now, of course, you've got a tremendous amount to tell us about what geology teaches us about the age of the Earth. Could you take us on a very slow, gentle walk, telling us what your field of geology actually teaches us about the Earth being billions of years old? Are you also challenged by hordes of people at times arguing that the Earth is indeed very young. Over to my guest in studio at cliffcentral.com, 
Professor Ray Durhard. David, it's really good to be with you here today. Thank you. And just, uh, just take your first question. I've certainly over the years been um, uh, approached by people who've put forward the point of view that the earth is, is very young, that it was just created, you could say, over a matter of a few days, a mm. few thousand years ago. Mm. And, um, you know, that's certainly not the way I see, see the world. You know, when I look at the, the earth and the processes that happen in the earth, I see all the evidence here for an earth that is you know, hundreds of millions of years mm. old. You know, if just, uh, I suppose to take one example, when one looks at the um, fit between continents such as Africa yes. and South America, yes. uh, uh, more than a century ago it was recognized that they, it looked as if they uh, fit, could have fit like a jigsaw right Excellent next to point. each other. Yes. And um, it took quite a long time before people understood what kind of forces could make continents drift like this. But yes. now over the last 30 or 40 years the whole concept and idea of plate tectonics has come into, into being. Yes. And here seismology has played a, a big role as well. To look at where earthquakes happen, mm. and we see they happen along our mid-ocean ridges where mm. the continents, are, the ocean floor is growing, mm. and we also see that they happen where continents are colliding into each other, such as India crashing into Asia and forming the Himalaya mountains. Yes, we also see it along the coast of Chile where the ocean floor is diving deep under the continent, and we get earthquakes happening about 700 kilometers deep. Yes. And so this is the, the subject material that I work with. We also, through our network of um, geophysical observatories, we now have instruments such as these global, very high-precision global positioning uh, system mm -hmm. um, beacons. Mm -hmm. And this, this allows us to measure motions of the order of a few millimeters per year. And here we can actually track the way in which continents are moving apart. Now, can you tell us, Ray, for our listeners, I think most of whom are aged under the 25, and perhaps who've never studied uh, plate tectonics before. I, I love your analogy, Ray, of the puzzle. And, you know, what Ray is essentially saying is that you've got Africa and South America and North America. And you can, you can see, you can estimate how long it would take for this to be one central mass. Could you give an idea to our listeners of how fast the continent, say, of Africa is drifting apart from South America? Just to sort of paint the picture for those We've got no background whatsoever in geology or geophysics. Well, I voted uh, in our general elections a few months ago, and at that time I had a, a mark put on my left thumb yes. to indicate that I'd voted. Yes. And over the next few weeks and months, I was able to see that my fingernail grow and that mark exactly. move along. And right now I've already cut, cut that yes. off. You know? yes. And so over the last couple of months, my fingernail has grown by more than a centimeter. Yes. And that's pretty much the speed at which these continents move apart. I mean, they move, uh, different continents are moving at different rates, anywhere between one centimeter here or sometimes as far, fast as 15 centimeters a year. Mm -hmm. But it's at a, at a slow rate, but ob observable, measurable, and over a period of hundreds of of millions of years, it makes a very big difference. Mm. You know, it opens an ocean as big as the mm. the, the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. And so that's the rate. I mean, also another element of human experience is when a, a child or uh, adolescent is going through their growth spurt when mm. they're aged 12, 13, or 14, mm. they, rate, they grow at this sort of rate of mm. a, a few mm. centimeters a year. Right. And that's also the rate right. at which continents are moving yes. apart. Now, of course, uh, I always, whenever I have the opportunity, Ray, love visiting the area of the Grand Canyon. And to me, it's impossible to envisage uh, an instantaneous event which is, you know, a thousand years old or sometimes less. Um, how do you specifically address people who might be very sincere in their faith with regard to their faith in God? And they simply saying, well, uh, from their viewpoint, the Grand Canyon, 
these massive canyons in the United States were just created very recently. How do you personally, uh, you know, do, how, do you, how do you address these issues when sincere people ask you sincere questions, but they're sincerely wrong? Well, I think I, I first explained that I don't see that part of the Bible as a, as a science book. Good. I see it uh, Good. You know, explaining to us, um, you know, why God created the universe, what his purpose was, what's the meaning of it, but yes. not the, the, the details, the scientific details. Yes. And so, you know, in the same way that one looks in, in the scriptures, you might see uh, prescriptions on how to treat a disease like leprosy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, you know, the, the, since then, so science has developed and doctors know how to, what drugs to treat mm. it with. And in the same way, you know, the, 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 the Bible isn't a medical textbook, Mm-mm. it isn't a doctor's mm. guide. Mm. And so I see, uh, you know, the scriptures uh, as having quite a different purpose. Mm. Mm. And I don't look to, you know, get, to, to get my scientific details from that, that mm. source. Mm. Would you agree with Galileo who said the following, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven not how the heavens go. In other words, what Galileo is saying there is that the Bible is for our spiritual edification, but it's not meant in any sense to be a scientific textbook. What are your thoughts on that comment, please, Ray? I think that's a very neat way of putting it together. Yes, no, yes. that sounds, sounds good to me. I could <laughs> go along with that. <laughs> well, I think that it is awesome, just the sort of the vast domain of different topics which you are covering. And uh, just before we start with some of the questions, I'd like to just remind our listeners that you can reach Professor Durheim today on 0861-555-189. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. On Instagram, cliffcentral. On Facebook, cliffcentral. And the WeChat ID, also cliffcentral. You're listening to Professor David Block. I can be reached on Twitter. My Twitter feed is at Starry Galaxy Man. That's at Starry Galaxy Man. You're most welcome to follow me. And my direct uh, link via the webpage is www.davidblock.co.za. Ray, it's a great pleasure to have you in the studio today. And you Bearing in mind that most of our listeners would have no training in geology, geophysics, and so forth, I would like you to take us on a little story, as it were, unfolding of a story, and that is, what is our Earth actually made of? What elements is it made of? What do you, as a geologist, see wearing your geophysical glasses? And then, you know, link to that, Ray, if you could perhaps elaborate on how do we know what the Earth is actually made of, and uh, does it really matter what the Earth is actually made of? So let's just consider head-on what is our little pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan said, actually made of. Right, well, we're really just sitting on the very outermost skin of this uh, of, of a planet. And from where we're sitting here to the center of the Earth is a distance of 6,400 kilometers. Yes. And really our, our deepest mines, and they are the deepest mines on Earth are here in South Africa, our gold mines, and they yes. got out to a depth of 4 kilometers. So you've got 4 kilometers versus 6,400. 6, and a few 
boreholes have been drilled down as ten kil- deep as ten kilometers, and that's yes. also just only uh, the, the, the the flakes on top of this 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 planet. Mm-hmm. So we have very little, you could say, direct evidence uh, in terms of looking with our own eyes to going down in terms holes. of sampling but we get samples brought to the surface from volcanoes and yes. there are particular types of uh, volcanoes called kimberlites and these are the Could ones that contain these? diamonds mm-hmm. and they originate a few hundred kilometers deep within the earth's mantle we know this by looking at the kind of minerals that are inside there and we can tell at what pressure these minerals formed and so we have what we call a sort of a, a, a barometric marker that allows us to determine the depth yes. from which they originate. Mm-hmm. So we can get samples in our hands that have been brought to the surface by these plumbing systems called volcanic pipes that give us samples a little bit deeper down. Yes. But ultimately, the way in which we as geophysicists have found out how the Earth works and what it's made of is firstly by making measurements on the outer part of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Now, in the same way these days in medicine, if um, before a doctor or surgeon operates on you, they might put you in a CAT scan machine. Yes. And this is a tube in which they put your body, and they will bombard you from all angles with X-rays. Mm-hmm. And from these X-rays, the way they are attenuated by your body, they can construct an image of, let's say, of your brain mm-hmm. before they operate. Now, in the same way, uh, we, the Earth's just a whole lot of a uh, bigger object, but we use earthquakes as our energy source, and we use seismometers, which are also spread all over the Earth as our detectors. Mm-hmm. And over a period of months and years and even decades, we collect lots of these ray paths that have traveled through the interior of the Earth, mm-hmm. and we analyze them all together, and that gives us an idea of the Earth's what you call seismic velocity structure, mm-hmm. the speed at which seismic waves travel through the Earth's interior. Now, of course, from there, we've got to make deductions as to what kind of rocks or material could be giving us these velocities. What sort of velocities are well, you talking about? You know, the, the, in, in the crust, um, a seismic wave travels, a P wave, the, the first wave that comes hmm. in, travels at a speed of around 6 kilometers per yes. second. Yes. So if you think from to get from Johannesburg to Cape Town, let's round it off to 1,200 kilometers hmm. divided by 6, it will hmm. take you 2 or 3 minutes hmm. to travel there by hmm. P wave. So it's hmm. pretty quick, not nearly as fast as a light wave, no. but still a pretty... Fast mm-hmm, speed. Mm-hmm. As we get deep in the earth, the speed goes up to perhaps 9 or 10 kilometers per second. Mm. So for a wave, if there's an earthquake on one side of the earth, for the, the wave to travel through the center of the earth and out the other side takes about 19 minutes, mm. um, traveling at an average of about 10, 10 kilometers yes. a second. Yes. And so we put together this whole picture, but now the question is, what is it made out of? Mm-hmm. And um, there we look uh, we into your domain, really, because we um, look at fragments of meteorites mm. and... Um, and there we see different classes of meteorites. We have our iron-nickel meteorites and we yes. have our stony meteorites. Yes. And uh, it's likely that these were fragments of you know, planets that broke up or that never made it to be planets. Mm-hmm. And if we take the properties of these rocks and say the outer part of the Earth, what we call the mantle, is made out of more the stony material mm-hmm. and the center of the Earth is made out of denser material. And that mm. has to be true for us to explain mm. the gravity field that we fall in, the pool of gravity, which yes. is another measurement we can make. Mm-hmm. It's best explained by having a, in a, uh, well, a core of iron and nickel mm-hmm. and a mantle of, and the mantle goes from the surface to about 2,000, well, 2,800 kilometers mm. of more rock-like material. Mm. And a fascinating thing about the outer core, and this is something that we see again from our seismic measurements, is there's a class of seismic waves called shear waves. Mm. And shear waves can travel through a solid material easily, but they cannot travel through a liquid or a gas, any kind of fluid. And at certain distances from an earthquake, we stop seeing these shear waves. And this mm-hmm. was interpreted mm-hmm. you know, more than a century ago. The best way to explain this mm-hmm. was uh, that there's a zone, mm-hmm. which we now call the outer core, where, which is liquid where mm-hmm. the temperatures are such that it turns our iron and nickel into a liquid. Mm-hmm. Now, that 
sounds amazing. It is amazing, but it also ties in with another kind of geophysical evidence in that our Earth's got a magnetic field. Yes. And that's hugely important yes. for us. It protects us from cosmic particles. Yes. Again, we get into your domain. Yes. And um, uh, so it's, it's important for, for, for the survival of life on Earth. But how, how does that field originate? Now, only a very small part of the field can be explained by magnetic rocks on the, in the Earth's crust. Correct. And that's because as we go deep in the Earth, it gets hotter. Mm-hmm. When you get to the core, it's about as hot, I believe, as the surface of the sun, mm-hmm. 5,000 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. And rocks lose their magnetization as they get deeper down. Correct. So it's only the top maybe 10 or 15 kilometers of the crust that can have magnetization. But to explain this very strong field that we've got, the best theory that we have is that it's caused by currents in this conducting fluid outer core of the Earth. Very dynamic, isn't it? It's tremendously so, yes. Mm. Yeah. And so if you were to put the whole picture together, uh, there's a little question here. How does the Earth actually work? Why are there continents and volcanoes and so forth? Before we get on to earthquakes, let's have your thoughts on that, Ray. Well, I suppose, you know, the, perhaps a nice way to explain it is, is when one looks at the weather systems. As we sit in and look out the window here, we can see clouds, we can feel winds, you know, we can see how the atmosphere works. Mm-hmm. And that's really driven, as I understand it, by the, you know, the, 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 the sun shines on the earth, certain parts get hot, other parts are cold, and so you have different air pressures and densities, and so you get uh, motions in the Earth's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of the Earth handling the mm. heat that mm. it gets. Mm. Now, the interior of the Earth is much the same, in that the Earth is hot inside and it's trying to get rid of this heat. Mm. And it can get rid of some of the heat by conduction, mm. but, if, but a more efficient way of getting rid of heat is convection. And that's when it starts, the fluid starts to rotate, just like when you cooking a soup or sure, cooking porridge. Sure, sure. And so that is what's happening within the, the, the interior of the Earth. We've got a hot core. Radioactivity is driving it. Mm. And so it's trying to get rid of this heat. And so you, mm. it, it causes these rocks, things that we normally think of as solid, but on mm. a rate of a few centimeters a year, they in fact mm. are convecting. Mm. And so it is this motion that sweeps the continents around the surface of the Earth because they're made of a rock that's a little bit lighter than the rocks that compose the mm-hmm. mantle. So they're a bit like mm-hmm. rafts on a sea or mm-hmm. ice floes I love that on analogy, yes. And uh, they are getting moved around. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, they crash into each other and build mountains. Mm. And um, these hot rocks that come up from, especially when you have a bit of ocean floor that's been diving back into the mm. Earth's mantle to be recycled, mm. um, it, it, the rock is, has got water with it. And so that makes its melting point lo- lower. And this gives rise to volcanoes. Mm. And so we've had this continual process of the Earth, I suppose, trying to get rid of its, rid of its heat. Mm. And this is hard to do by being active mm. in this way. I think there's a lovely analogy, listeners, and that's really the analogy which Professor Ray Durheim has mentioned with regard to, for example, say medicine and his chosen field of expertise as he holds the South African Research Chair in Earthquake Exploration and Mining Seismology. And that is, I'd like to take our listeners back to the birth of our twin boys who are now 16, Ray. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did some Doppler scanning in the uh, radiology unit. And you could actually detect the directions of the blood flow. And it was incredible. The one was color-coded blue. The blood was coming towards us. The other was Doppler color-coded red. The blood was flowing away. And it's... It, I think you hold such an incredible jewel in your hands, namely the earth, that by means of the way that these seismic waves actually travel and the speeds at which they travel and the directions, 
putting the whole puzzle together, you've actually got a very, you've got a dynamo in your hand, a jewel, which is not only a jewel, but it's a dynamo which is evolving, which is changing, which is ever uh, spewing forth secrets to uh, a plethora of different mysteries. Is that not true? Oh, very much so. You know, and I, I suppose it's often said we, you know, know very little, still there are huge things to be discovered yet about the earth and the way it, it works. I think we have got a general framework, but there are lots of details and very important details that we don't understand very well yet. How do you believe, if, if we had to put my, uh, you know, my professorial hat on as a professor of astronomy, we do have a rather detailed understanding of how the sun formed, how stars are born, looking up at the Pleiades star cluster. Uh, we understand that young stars are very blue and hot and so forth. Our understanding is pretty deep, even though there's still a lot of in, uh, pieces of information to fill into the cracks. Our understanding is pretty at a pretty high level. How would you rate our level of understanding the Earth's interior array on a scale, say, of 0 to 10? I suppose my experience is as science progresses, it seems to always open <laughs> it's, new it's questions. True. So it's, yes. it's hard for me to put it on, on a scale, but I'd say we probably, I, I suppose now I feel quite confident with this theory of plate tectonics. It can explain maybe 70 or 80% of the phenomena that mm-hmm. we see, but there are mm-hmm. still very important features that we do not yet know how to explain. And let yes. me just give you one example. Yes, and, and, you know, here in Johannesburg, we're sitting at an elevation of about 1,500 meters above sea level. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also mm-hmm. very good evidence that the interior of, of, of southern Africa was at sea level, somewhere yes. between maybe 10, 20, 30 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, for some reason, and there are quite a few theories about this, but we don't know yet for sure, mm-hmm. this part of southern Africa bobbed up. Yes. Um, during that period of time, it was now what we call vertical motion. Now, yes. plate tectonics is, is very good at explaining horizontal motions mm-hmm. of these plates. Mm-hmm. It's less good at explaining why we have vertical motion. Mm. And we see, and there's abundant evidence for this. If you travel over the Free State and the Northern Cape, mm-hmm. you just see these endless Absolutely. flat plates. You look at our Absolutely. rivers, you see the Orange River, the way it's cutting its way back mm-hmm. into that plateau, and you see mm-hmm. the spectacular Okrabi's waterfall. Mm-hmm. Or if you go to the Eastern Escarpment, you see the Natal Drakensberg Isn't it over beautiful? there, and the Tugela Stunning. Falls, and you mm-hmm. see how that's been eroded back. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of evidence for this mm-hmm. that we were, uh, the subcontinent was at sea level and has risen. Now there's mm. a, uh, why it is we, ideas but we are not sure and this is one of the things that we are trying to do by getting better and better data that gives us better and better resolution mm. to try to see features that could explain this mm. you are listening to uh, professor ray durheim geophysicist who holds the south african research chair in fact one of the first Sarchi chairs ever established in this country uh, in his chosen field of expertise Earthquakes, which we'll be getting onto, and of course, Orkney, which has been high up on the agenda of all the mindsets of our listeners on cliffcentral.com. Also, earthquake, exploration, and mining seismology. He also serves in the unit of the Natural Resources and Environment Unit at the CSIR, as well as the school works in the School of Geoscience at uh, Wits University. Of course, generally, you are looking up with David Block, but today we are looking down. A music cut from Enya.
You are listening to Professor David Block, looking up with David Block on uh, cliffcentral.com. My guest in studio in Ravonia today is Professor Ray Durheim, who works simultaneously to wearing two different hats in the School of Geoscience at Wits University and the Natural Resources and Environment Unit at the CSIR. To reach us in studio, you may dial 0861-555-189. Give us a call. Ask us about Orkney and the earthquake which occurred in Orkney. 0861-555-189. I repeat yet again, 0861-555-189. You can reach us on our Twitter feed, the cliffcentral.com, Twitter feed at cliffcentral.com. On Instagram, cliffcentral. On Facebook, Cliff Central. The WeChat ID is Cliff Central. My Twitter feed, if you wish to follow me, Professor David Block, is at Starry Galaxy Man. And my webpage is www.davidblock.co.za, where you can read all about the work we are currently involved in, as well as the inspirational talks which I'm invited to deliver around the globe. It is absolutely fascinating talking to you, Ray, about uh, earthquakes, about plate tectonics, about the shifting of the continents, the moving of continents, as if in a jigsaw puzzle. I love it. I'm challenged by it. I am passionate about it. I see an interface, a marriage between your domain, perhaps of the microcosm, and my domain of the macrocosm. But of course, Ray, August the 5th uh, struck a very deep chord in the mindsets of all of us, I suppose, uh, I was sitting in my chair in uh, Senate House at the University of the Witwatersrand, and I suddenly felt these tremors, and I realized something was just happening that I'm not really accustomed to. Please lead us through slowly what actually caused the earthquake which struck Orkney on August the 5th of this year. Yeah, well, David, I must confess, I didn't actually feel it because I was sitting in Rio de Janeiro <laughs> at the time. All right. And I was teaching a course at the Brazilian Geological Survey on how one uses seismology to look at the structure of the crust and upper mantle. But when I start my classes, as I do at WITS and also over there each day, is I look at the world map of seismology and say, where have earthquakes been in the yes. last uh, uh, 24 hours? And usually they happen along these plate boundaries. And that was the case when, uh, you know, that when we looked earlier on that morning uh, in Brazil. But then during the course of the day, I said, well, let's just have another look because there's a service provided by the United States Geological Survey where they monitor seismometers globally in real time all the time. And within 20 minutes of there being a big earthquake or biggish earthquake, they will provide a location. Mm-hmm. And I looked back there and I, early in the morning and said, look, there have been no earthquakes in Brazil, no earthquakes in Africa. There have been a few elsewhere in the world. Mm. But all of a sudden there was a, a dot there mm-hmm. uh, in South Africa. So mm. I immediately got onto the Internet, logged onto various news sites, looked at my um, – Internet, and I was already getting requests from people asking me, what's this all about? Mm. So I got to hear about it pretty quickly, but I mm. didn't actually feel it myself. Mm-hmm. But, uh, of course, I've been involved in this field of mine, mining-related seismology for over 20 years now. Absolutely. And here in South Africa, we have the deepest mines in the world. Mm-hmm. We've been digging gold around from Johannesburg and in towns like Carltonville and Clarksville mm-hmm. and Belcom in the Free State for um, over a century right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And as early as 1908, the people in Johannesburg were alarmed about the tremors that they were feeling mm. so that the government instituted a, a commission known as the Overton Commission of Inquiry mm-hmm. into the mm-hmm. tremors that people mm-hmm. were feeling in Johannesburg to find out what these 
tremors were about, what was mm-hmm. causing them, and what could be done about it. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion then is that they were related to the mining, that because mm-hmm. you've created a void underground, you've got a weight resting on these pillars that are left behind to keep the roof of the mine workings open. Mm. Every now and again, these pillars would crack and fail, and they would release energy that's, um, uh, that's been stored up in the mm-hmm. rock. Mm-hmm. And as mines got deeper in Johannesburg and elsewhere, of course, this problem persisted. And commissions were again created in 1915, in 1924, in 1964 uh, to look into these problems as mines got deeper. And in fact, in 2005, there was another big, the previous largest earthquake happened also near Clarksdorp and hit a town called Stilfontein. Mm. And that was a time uh, where... Over 3,000 mine workers were in fact trapped underground mm. because the shaft was broken by mm. the, 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 the faulting. Mm. And um, uh, they mm. were rescued, brought out mm. to the surface. Were to any other. killed? In fact, two men lost their lives mm-hmm. in this. There were about 200 mine workers in Stopes, as we call them, mine workers, where the mm. shaking was very severe. Mm. And those men, it took a lot longer to rescue them mm. because the traveling ways had collapsed and they had to extricate them through ore passes. Mm. Two mine workers in that uh, in that area had. And what was the sort of this on the risk scale? What did that have that was a five point three. I see. You know, so quite similar in, mm-hmm. in size to this mm-hmm. latest one. Though you must remember that the Richter scale or this magnitude scale is not a is a logarithmic scale. Yes. So if you go from magnitude five to a magnitude six, there's a difference of about thirty or thirty-two times in the amount of, of energy yes. that's, that's released. Yes. Um, so these. Events aren't new, you know, and really following that event in 2005, I was asked by the chief inspector of mines to lead an investigation uh, into the causes, again, of these earthquakes and what can be done about it. And I was given, we had public hearings in the mining districts. I was even given powers to arrest and subpoena people that I didn't have to call on that, but to really come to, uh, 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 you know, bring together our state of knowledge regarding what drives these events. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly in, in Everywhere in the world, you will from time to time get natural earthquakes. Mm-hmm. If we had no mining in South Africa, we would still occasionally get earthquakes. Yes. But certainly the overwhelming evidence is that where we are doing mining, where we're creating these voids, we're disturbing the stress in the earth, we are triggering and inducing earthquakes. And mm-hmm. the occurrence of earthquakes is magnified. Is The rate is mm-hmm. hundreds of times greater than mm-hmm. it would be without any kind of mm-hmm. mining. So our conclusion in 2005 was that the you – know, that earthquake was, you could say, driven by you know, decades of mining, which mm. have created large voids underground. Mm. Now, mm. one just has to drive in these mining areas to see these mine dumps mm. and these uh, waste dumps. And you think, well, that must have come from somewhere. Mm. You know? And, of mm. course, the, the chambers underground aren't so high. They're quite narrow and flat. But yet you can be sure we've made uh, lots of openings underground. Mm. And gravity is just mm. wanting to close this mm. down. Mm. And that's what it will do with time. Mm. So what's driving this in this case is not plate tectonics, Mm-mm. it's the mining. But of course, in, in South, the crust in Southern Africa, we do have stresses that are driven by the mid-ocean ridges, by plate movements, mm. by the East African rift, which is gradually cracking Africa in two. Mm. And so this is also affecting it. So sometimes you have earthquakes that are clearly only driven by the mining. It's a fresh rupture in rock that has not had any fault in it before, and that you can say is 100% due to mining. But then many of the earthquakes, especially these bigger ones, the slip takes place along ancient cracks and faults mm-hmm. within the earth. And so here you get into a combination of uh, uh, perhaps mining might have triggered something, but it might also have been some forces, some strains that are locked up inside the earth crust that wants to be relieved. And the data that we've since seen already, the Council for Geoscience is the agency in South Africa that's responsible for the national monitoring over here. They've recorded uh, 
seismograms, as have the U.S. Geological Survey put together global seismograms. And that indicates that most of the movement we got in this fault was not, um, you could say, one side of the fault going down and the other side going up, yes. which is what you'd expect if you are closing a void. Yes, exactly. But it's actually what we call strike-slip motion, where well, uh, you know one part of the crust is moving north and the other one mm-hmm. part south. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult to explain entirely just by... You know, um, uh, uh, the mining. Mining, yes. It would seem to indicate that perhaps the mining triggered the event because the uh, point where the rupture started was only a few hundred meters, maybe a kilometer below the mining and well within the range mm. of influence mm. of the mining. Um, mm. The rupture itself it extended for several kilometers, maybe mm. as far as 10 kilometers. That information we get from mm. the aftershock distribution. And uh, so it might well have, you could say, awakened a, a sleeping giant, giant down there. Yes. And cause that slip as well. Mm-hmm. And so um, right now we haven't, I suppose we still, it will still take quite a lot more analysis. And maybe you know, it's, we will not ever come to an mm. actual definitive, you could say, balance of forces and the mm. contribution of mining and the contribution of tectonics. But it would certainly mm. seem that both are, are implicated mm. here. Of course, what's very interesting is, am I correct or am I incorrect in saying that earthquakes cannot really be predicted? I mean... I don't suppose any of us could have really predicted the earthquake in Orkney. Now, I'm thinking, for example, Ray, of some of the great observatories uh, in California and then in Hawaii. And whenever I visit Los Angeles and Caltech and so on, I often look at these buildings and you go up, you know, to the 10th or 20th or 30th story, but uh, there's no guarantee that you won't be swallowed up in the next minute or two, and of course, everybody keeps on telling me, well, the next big one is going to strike. I mean, there was clearly no predictive uh, powers at work, were there, with regard to earthquakes in Orkney. Are there any predictive powers at all which can get people, say, to evacuate, or have we got absolutely no means of, say, telling when the next big one in Los Angeles might hit Los Angeles? Well, this is a problem that uh, you could say it's almost a bit of a holy grail of seismology. If we could find a way to reliably predict exactly when and where and how big an earthquake will be. And I must say, nobody anywhere has succeeded in doing this. There have been a few instances where warnings have been issued and an earthquake has taken place, but a lot more which have been false alarms. And you cannot keep issuing false alarms. Um, I, you know, re- Compare it a lot to the weather again. You know, one can predict pretty much what the rainfall will be in Johannesburg, yes. whether there'll be thunderstorms. Yes. We see it on the weather forecast yes. every day. There's perhaps a 30% yes. chance of rain. We'll see predicted there will be lightning and, but to actually predict when and where a lightning bolt is going to strike is a bit like predicting when and where an earthquake will happen. I see. So, so it's that sort of level of. Yes. Uncertainty. It's that sort of physics. So, I mean, one knows that if you're in a mining area like Clarksdorp or in, around Johannesburg, now especially as we allow in the water table to rise in the mines, that there will be a flurry of seismic activity. And in the same way, if you want to protect your home against lightning, you don't, uh, what you do is you put up a, you know, a, a lightning rod. Mm. You do, you, you rely on prevention and protection mm. rather than alarm and, 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 and you could say prediction. And so it's the same, uh, you know, with, with earthquakes. While we, of course, we are busy trying to predict, and right mm-hmm. now I'm involved with a program with Japanese scientists where mm-hmm. that is still one of our objectives mm-hmm. to see if we can find what mm-hmm. the Japanese like to call a forerunner or a mm-hmm. precursor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we certainly have not given any promises that we will. But as with earthquake engineering in Los Angeles or, you know, or in Japan, mm-hmm. what you, the, the, what is done is, of course, you choose your sites, you study the ground and see how susceptible it is to, to shaking because, uh, Different ground structures are more susceptible than others. Solid rock is far better than sand. I mean, it's mm-hmm. uh, 
like the biblical text, which says the wise man builds his house on the rock. Well, that's very good earthquake engineering advice as well. Mm. And also then you make your building in such a way that it's resistant to that shaking. So if mm. it shakes, it might crack a little bit, mm. but it won't fall down. Mm. So it's a bit like, again, I suppose a mm. motor car. Mm. You, if you're in a crash, you don't try to make your car so strong mm. that uh, mm. it, it will. you can drive mm. away with it. Your mm. car's designed to crumple, to absorb the energy, but that the occupant inside will be kept safe by the airbags and the and the, you know and the shell the the, the of, uh, of the of the car. So it's that that really is the driver in earthquake engineering is to choose your site to, to build carefully and then build appropriately, build a structure that can take the shake. Now, Ray, of course, the the, the key point here is that you know whenever I do visit Los Angeles, you know, and if you are in one of these buildings, the question really is you can't really predict when the next big one will hit, and also you can't predict its magnitude. Now. If you can't predict its magnitude, uh, therefore, I mean, you could well be swallowed up. The building could be swallowed up. So, in a sense, you are doing the best you can. Perhaps your car knowledge is brilliant of an airbag in a car. But if you're in a building like this, or as I was in Mexico, and a big one does strike, uh, there may be zero chance of actually escaping the devastation. Is that not true? Yes. Well, let me just add a little bit more on this effort, or this thing of, of prediction. Please. Because uh, while we can't pr- predict the time at which the main event will occur, often you can uh, find an event that's uh, tens of kilometers away, or even hundreds of kilometers away, that can still cause damage. Mm. And there are systems around in the U.S. and in Japan and countries like that, that the moment they detect an earthquake, they very rapidly calculate how big it is. Mm. And if it's a large earthquake, they send out alarms. And so, for example, if you've got a speeding train, that train will stop. If you've got mm. your fire stations, your emergency response mm. stations, the doors will open so they don't get jammed. Mm. You will stop, turn off, uh, you know, gas pipelines and things like that. So that's not a prediction of the earthquake, but it's a, a it's, it's taking very rapid action. Mm. So you stop critical, I suppose, operations prior to your shaking. Now, Ray, what does prior mean? I mean, in your field, because are we looking at predictive powers of a few minutes? Are we looking at a predictive power of an hour? Or in Orkney, did we have no predictive powers? Whatsoever? The, the, the time that it would have taken for that rupture to occur and for the shaking to reach the, the surface would have been of a, a matter of seconds. Exactly. Nothing that you could have done usefully. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting in a, in a building and you feel strong shaking taking place, the thing to do is not to panic, not to run outside the building. In fact, because a lot more people are injured by falling masonry, by falling downstairs and getting trampled on. Mm. And what you know, it's a school children are trained to do in Japan or California is to duck under their under their under their desks or mm-hmm. under a table mm-hmm. and then yes. bro- hold onto we the leg of the table. We always want to try and hide, don't we? <laughs> yes. And so if something, if, if the roof falls down, if, if it collapses, at least there's a structure over you that will perhaps protect you from that falling material and give rescuers a chance to dig you out. Mm. So certainly that's the and, – and usually the shaking will last even the – you know, for – perhaps a minute or a minute and a half. I know people, when they sense it, it seems a lot, lot longer. But yet you just must tr- seek to be self-controlled, remain in place, find shelter, be quiet until the shaking subsides. And, of course, if you're okay, start look ar- looking around and seeing if there's anybody that you can help um, that might have been injured by falling. Debris. So, Ray, as this is a global streaming uh, Cliff Central, we might have people listening to us in Los Angeles as we're talking. What should a person do in a high building? Say they've got an apartment there. What should they do if the building starts shaking? Clearly, they mustn't go and use the elevator or the lift and try and get down. But suppose you're in a house or you're in a building and, you know, 
a big one starts striking and there are tremors and so on. Uh, could you lead us through from a safety perspective? What is the best thing to do if you're in a house? Must you run, rush to get cover? Must you run outside? What, I mean, let's take the house situation and then the apartment one step by step. Well, I think if you're in a, in a house uh, and there are just a few people in the house, you're not going to likely to be caught in a stampede. Of you pro- probably can get out of the door pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then that w- would probably be the, the thing to do. Of course, you must be aware of objects that could fall from the roof. Now, right. of course, one of the, the first casualties in an earthquake is your chimney. And it's also happened, I, I know, a few years ago, there was an earthquake in, in Rwanda. And then people fled out of a church and sadly about a dozen people were called, killed by the falling steeple. And mm. so, again, these are things, if you're in an mm. earthquake area, you should probably start planning your escape routes and think about what you would do mm. and, 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 and mm. look at objects that are, mm. you know, a parapet of a mm-hmm. house, a chimney, yes. a steeple yes. that could collapse and could injure you. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, there are objects out of doors that can cause injury. You know, for example, uh, in parts of the world where we've got very uh, flat topography, we often have water tanks put on towers mm. in order to give us water mm. pressure. Mm. Now, of course, if you have shaking, these mm. this is an inverted mm. pendulum. could of be course. very exposed to shaking and it could topple, topple over. Mm. Now, you don't stand uh, uh, near one of those. Mm. Um, of course, that can be made safe very easily by putting guy ropes onto your, mm. onto your water mm. tower. But so nevertheless, can, it's an object of great danger. So I, I, one would certainly recommend you know, uh, that, that people should you know, think about safety in their house just in the same way you do what would happen if there was a fire or an electrical accident, mm. you know, uh, what would your plan of action mm. be? Do you have a fire extinguisher? Mm. Do you have a first aid kit? What would mm. you be your exit route mm. be? Mm. And so this is, so, so one isn't caught by a panic at that time. Right. But I think, you know, in a, in a house, the, um, the prudent thing would be, would be to find your way out of, out of doors if you can do so mm. safely without mm. exposing yourself to any falling objects. Mm. In the United States, in California, you find that, in fact, many houses are not made out of brick and mortar, but they are wood-framed houses, and so, in fact, they are very resilient to shaking. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, very people living point. in there have, have, yes. have little to fear. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, their roofs are, are made out of light material, so it's not mm-hmm. heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you live in a house that perhaps might have uh, slate tiles or terracotta tiles, you've got a heavy load on top, and that would be prone to collapse. But if your house has been built with, uh, you know, could say earthquake shaking in mind, you've, in fact, got very little to fear. And in that case, I'd probably mm-hmm. say stay indoors until the, the event is over. Mm. Excellent advice from Professor Ray Durheim. Uh, Ray, we have a question, and it says, Professor Durheim, is it possible for an earthquake to annihilate all of humanity? If so, when will such an event occur? Right. Uh, to my knowledge, you know, uh, that, that, that is not... Uh, at all a likely occurrence. The very biggest earthquakes we've ever had are around magnitude nine and a half. And those are when you have an earthquake occurring along what we call a subduction zone where you can have a very, very long fault. And that's about 1,200, 1,500 kilometers long. And you might have. So it's very localized. And so that would be along the coast of South yes. America or along the coast of Japan or along yes. the coast of Indonesia. And the earthquakes mm-hmm. that we've had in the last century, we've had a few examples like that. And, you know, and so you'll have a section of the Earth's crust where you've had a lot of strain building up and it will jump from segment to segment and eventually you'll get a maximum earthquake of that size. And, um, you know, as, as I suppose as Earth scientists, as geophysicists, we just don't see the mm. opportunity for mm. a, a, 10 of these going mm. off within a short Some period of time. And of also course. the effects are, are generally quite local. They're within tens of kilometers of, your, of, of the fault line mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there might be severe damage in local conditions. And mm. there's certainly many cities right now 
more than 60 large cities, mega cities with more than 5 million inhabitants that are close to faults that, mm. that, that will go off in the next few centuries. So mm. we can expect from t- time to time there will be an earthquake that will strike Istanbul or Tehran or course, Tokyo or San Francisco or but Los not Angeles, a global Seattle, event. But not global. But not a global event. We are talking. My guest this uh, afternoon is Professor Ray Durheim, who's an expert geophysicist. And I'd like to turn our attention in the last uh, 10 minutes to something which has been of concern to me. Not knowing, not being an expert by any means in this area, I'd like to know Ray's viewpoints on this. And that is the following. The Karoo is very precious to me. And I suppose to a great number of South Africans, just the glory of the Karoo, those incredible long roads which seem to span you know, the very depths from horizon to horizon. But also, of course, the Karoo, the place where we are constructing in the, right up north, the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, and so on. And uh, there seems to be a power struggle, Ray, uh, in the domains of the Karoo. And, of course, I'm talking about fracking. Now, there seems to be a power struggle because, on the one hand, the key drivers of fracking seem to be giant oil companies and so forth. So there clearly is a lot of money involved. And as Clem Sunter said to us a few weeks ago on this very station, when money is involved, money starts talking. These companies tell us that fracking is very safe. Uh, there's nothing to worry about. It does not disturb the environment in any way. I would like to know from you, as someone who is so highly esteemed in the world, occupying the South African Research Chair in Earthquake Exploration and Mining Seismology, what what are your personal viewpoints on this incredibly important issue regarding should fracking go ahead or not? Is it money-driven or is it not? Well, David, the, the Karoo is also very precious to me. I mean, one of the favorite places we like to go to when we travel into the Cape is stop off in New Bethesda or Hrafranet, and those are absolute jewels James. there. And we cannot ar- allow those to be destroyed. And, um, you know, so, but of course, this is a difficult question. You know, first, we don't even know for sure whether there is any shale gas there. Mm-hmm. The rocks seem to be the right age, mm-hmm. and so the potential is, is considerable, but we need to, in order to find out whether there's a significant amount of shale gas, holes will have to be drilled and samples will have to be taken. And so I think our our government has been wise to not rush in there, but to say what can we learn from the experience elsewhere in the world. And I know teams have been sent over to places like Pennsylvania to look at the experience there and uh, to see what what, what really are the the facts of the matter. Mm -hmm. And the information that I have, and of course I've been to places like that, spoken to people who are very involved in it, yes. is I think if one is drilling a, a single well, and you know the whole idea of fracking is you drill a, a borehole into your formation, yes. and normally in the past the way, play way we'd find oil is that you know oil and gas is formed by the remains of plants and animals and mm-hmm. they died and got buried, deeply buried and with time it got cooked up and got turned into in the, that kitchen into these mm-hmm. products and then would seep out and be trapped inside sandstones, which are a bit more spongy and you can suck the, the, the mm-hmm. oil out there but, of course, to be kept in the sandstone, you did another impervious layer on top to act as a trap. Mm-hmm. But in South Africa, we haven't been successful to, in finding those kind of oil reservoirs. A lot of work was done by 
Sukor, a company in the Karoo in the 1960s and 70s. But the, uh, and that's probably because some of the oil and gas that was there has just escaped through cracks and faults mm-hmm. in the earth. Mm-hmm. But now the idea is to go to the source rock mm-hmm. and by fracking that, that's putting in very high pressure fluids, making little cracks in the rock by also blowing in or, or forcing in little sand pellets to keep those cracks open. It is possible to extract gas should it be there. Now, I, it is my opinion that if you're working with a couple of wells and you're doing carefully with careful engineers and careful monitoring, that that process can be done safely without a, a polluting shallow aquifers. Because, I mean, the depths at which we are, are, are looking is many kilometers below, not the same aquifers as that farmers tap into. Yes. But, of course, there are a lot of issues here. This operation needs a lot of water. Okay? Yes. Where do you get the water yes, from? Absolutely. And, of course, we know the Karoo's mm-hmm. uh, uh, lacks water. Mm-hmm. Um, the companies like Shell say, well, they'll get it from grey water, municipal water that's already been used, or else they'll have to pipe it from the Orange River or perhaps even bring it in from the sea. So that would be an issue. Of course, when you're doing this and when you are producing, you produce a lot of polluted water. When you're mm. just doing your exploration, mm. you won't be producing mm. much polluted water. Mm. But should this go into production, mm. the, water, the water you pump in, you, mm. you extract as well, and that's got some nasties in it. Mm. So you'd have to be very careful how you manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there so are lots of nasties, aren't there? I think there are quite a lot of nasties. Again, you know, the, the, uh, for a while there's been quite a lot of secrecy about what chemicals are used, but I mean, well, Shell has, certainly, has certainly gone public and said that they will disclose whatever they use and will be open for monitoring. But they there. haven't disclosed it yet. Well, not to my knowledge, mm-hmm. not yet, but mm-hmm. they, so I'm not quite sure of the details yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you've got, um, you, you know, you'll be creating uh, roads and pipelines, and you'll be also bringing in workers to the communities. And now this is, uh, I suppose, an issue when you, uh, I mean, the hope of this, of course, will create employment, and some of them might be locals, but certainly you'll have crews that will be moving around and setting up these plants, and that, of course, could have a, a disruptive effect on, on communities. Of course, there are ways in which you could manage this um, by, and, and this is, you almost have fly-in, fly-out camps that, that your crews come in and work on-site for maybe two weeks and don't mix with the local communities and then return to their families. That might be one way to manage it. But it certainly could have a a significant effect on communities and the environment. I suppose we've got to ask ourselves, you know, as we drive through the crew, we see these beautiful open plains, but we see mostly a few sheep and maybe some cattle. Mm -hmm. And it's not pristine. I mean, uh, if you go back a few centuries, you know, one would have, you you read these stories of these magnificent migrating herds of springbok. Mm -hmm. So we mustn't kid ourselves to say this is, um, you know, absolute pristine countryside. And I, I guess this is also, you know, the, the, the difficult decisions that we've got to make to what extent to have a trade-off over here in terms of benefit perhaps to our country as a whole, as to our economy, savings in foreign exchange. I mean, we all, I think, like to drive motor cars, have electric lights, have the comforts that energy provides, and there are inevitably some costs associated. Mm. Any one fracking well, of course, will operate for a few years, a few, you know, uh, and then it will be exhausted. Mm. And I think you know, generally you have um, – a, a well platform, which is perhaps a few football fields in size where you'll have your equipment. And that will, of course, when you fly over it or see it, it will look a bit ugly. But it's, uh, but once that well is exhausted, of course, it can be dismantled and can be restored. Mm. Now, again, I think there's a role here to have stringent and well-enforced regulation if we go in that route. And so we're not left with the, I suppose, the mess we have in other parts of South Africa where mines have been abandoned and we are left with the, the legacy of having to, to fix it up. I suppose the wondrous thing is that in astronomy, we just can't touch what we study. For example, you know, stars, we just can't get there and touch them. What worries me is I've just seen mankind getting involved in different experiments on Earth uh, with somewhat disastrous consequences at times. 
And I just want to know from you, are the costs, not the financial costs, but the dangers, the nasty errors that can creep in? You've got a system of unknowns, a dynamical system of so many unknowns. It's very dangerous to start perturbing the tipping point if you don't know exactly what all those unknowns will do and will lead to once you start the process. That is my concern. No, I'd share that with you. And I think if we go that route, and I guess it needs to be a, a decision that we make as a, as, as a nation, that we need to put measures in, in place and go very slowly and see how it happens. I mean, we have other, uh, I suppose you could say, tipping points as well. We have unemployment, for Absolute, example. We have course. poverty. Of you know, course. so how does one, uh, you, you know, so, so here are, I suppose, are, are difficult decisions that need to, need to be made, and can we justify keeping an area that could contribute to this absolutely pristine while people are, you could say, starving nearby? So that is the difficult balance, I guess, that we yes. need to use our intelligence and our moral fiber to come up with a, a wise answer. I suppose, Ray, whenever one has money involved, it seems to strike a warning bell with me because uh, some of these giant companies do do things and conduct research which in the end can prove, need not prove, but can sometimes prove to be detrimental in certain areas. And I think one just has to keep a very clear and open scientific mind and not make any drastic decisions. As we wrap up, I am speaking to Professor Ray Durheim, who holds the South African Research Chair in Earthquake, Exploration and Mining Seismology works in the School of Geoscience at Wits University and the Natural Resources and Environment Unit at the CSIR. He collaborates with vast numbers of scientists, uh, countries in Africa, countries in Australia, Belgium, Brazil, China, Japan, Sweden, the United States. Race also serves on a number of committees. The Science Plan Implementation Committee of the International Council for Science Regional Office for Africa. These are some of the world's really foremost echelons of research, conducting research into these cutting areas. Um, and, of course, Orkney has just been so much on the news lately. And then he's also deeply involved, and unfortunately time doesn't permit us to discuss this, but he's also deeply involved in the global earthquake model regional program for the entire Africa it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and privilege, Ray, to have you uh, on our program. For those uh, listening to us from earthquake-prone areas, do take care. Listen to what Professor Ray Durham has told you. Never to be induced into some sort of panic-stricken state. You've been listening to Professor David Block, looking up with David Block, you can always reach us in studio on 0861 and Dunkel will play us out, our audio engineer Duncan will play us out with one minute to go with a song which will lift not only our minds but our hearts and our spirits. Until next time, this is Professor David Block signing out.